Thanks for listening to The Gathering from Storyline Church. The last few weeks we've been considering how the grace of God changes everything about life in our lives. This past Sunday, at Storyline's Gathering, we explored the unique way the grace of God creates our self-image. The band performed songs by Billie Eilish, Ben Rector, Lauren Daigle, and more. Let's have a listen. I was staring at a phone 
must have been 15 years back Can't believe we dressed like that Feels like yesterday Funny how we used to all pretend We'd never become our parents' friends But seasons change and summer ends It just fades away Yeah, you can't stay It's as old as ancient history People quit being young and keep trying to be None of that makes sense to me The way it did back then Cause everybody's chasing endless nights Open roads and neon lights Yeah, you could walk a million miles But it's footsteps in the sand Cause you can't stay
What kind of big day? Because you're in you the first how, grade? You know how hard it is to be in first grade and, it, and it's hard? And how big it is to do stuff? No. It is hard. And I get grumpy. Well, I worked all day and I get grumpy. But I'm not being grumpy to you. Because I'm grumpy as you. Why are you getting so upset? <laughs> You don't want to get old? I cannot do that thing. Well, somebody did it. Well, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't see it happen. I was looking to you. I was looking to you and going to get ready to say something that I love you. But then I started looking and it just spilled. My arm just moved. Like some somebody pulled my arm over there. Just the bell. The wing. I didn't even see it happen. Then I started to look. I saw it happen. And then, that's just what I saw. It's just, I can't explain that. I can't, I don't know how that happened. Did you see it? Hi. Hi, everybody. I You don't want Aunt Judy to get me? Good morning. Oh, goodness. Good morning, Storyline. It's so good to be together. I saw that video this week, and I just had to share it because last Sunday, well, I'm pretty hot there. Last Sunday, I had the pleasure of being in the nursery, and it was so fun. So I want you to check out the lineup that we had in there, okay? This is moving left to right, top, top row first. Olive, Hugo, Marlo, Ezra, Evie, Lenora, and Bo, right? Now, first of all, so cute, just amazing. And here's the thing, how about those names? They're so great. Listen to this again, they're, they're just so awesome. Olive, Hugo, Marlo, Ezra, Evie, Lenora, and Bo. So cool, I absolutely love it. So I, um, I've been a teacher now for 33 years, and I've been exposed to a lot of names. Like names matter. There are names that are ruined, okay? For example, I work with a, a Mike, and, and that's my name, and now that name's ruined. I used to like it, right? But this, this school year, I, I did a little math. I'm starting my 34th year as a teacher. I've added, I added up, generally speaking, how many students I've had in my 34 years and it will go over 10,000 this semester. I've had 10,000 students, right? No, you say, yeah. Just, so if there's, you're, you're gonna see 10,000 deeply wounded people running around, right? Anyways, at this point, I am literally struggling to learn names, and if I see an old student and I can still remember their name, it's probably not for a good reason. But when we started our family, we were so determined to pick fun, rare names like these. And so we bought a baby book and we went through that thing backward and forward, up and down. We put tons of great ideas together. Then the, the, the kids started being born and what did we pick? Well, our first child is James. <laughs> great name, but far from like the goal. Like we wanna do something unusual, rare, vintage. Our second child, Jenna. And so, again, I love the name, but it wasn't what we had in mind when we bought that book. What was the name of that baby name book? Beyond James and Jennifer. Was it? 
title, we have the names right there on the, on the cover. So pathetic, right? True but sad story. Sad but true story. Anyway, I'm in, I was in the nursery last week with these super cute kids, wonderful, rare, vintage names, and I'm just like, and it dawned on me. I was looking at all of them, and it dawned on me all at once. Three of them, Olive, Lenora, and Ezra, are children of former students of mine. And I, I just got like tears in my eyes. And I'm, I told Heather, I told Heather, who was in there with me, volunteering in there with me, and, and she was like, oh, that is so amazing. And then I was really thinking about it. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks because one of these little ones, Lenora, is not just the child of former students. She's the granddaughter of one of my Young Life kids. <laughs> yeah, I shared that with Heather and she said, you might want to keep that to yourself. <laughs> but it was like a little bit of a moment for me. It was a little bit of, even right now, I'm like, whoa. It's a little bit of a moment for me. Like, how can I be that old? Suddenly those years just start to, you know, add up. And it just like, felt like it's burying me a little bit. I felt like the little girl in the video. I, I don't want to get old. But here, here's the thing. We all have ways of seeing ourselves, right? We've all had that experience where you look in the mirror in the morning, you're like, who is that? right? But we all, we all have ways of seeing ourselves. We have stories that we see ourselves in and roles that we play in those stories. We have a way that we think about ourselves. And for me, that situation in the nursery last Sunday morning was, you know, holding the granddaughter of a former teen I had worked with did not fit my self-image. I was having what they call an identity crisis. It was a moment for me. And the way we typically use the word or the concept of identity is essentially this. It's our own sense of self or our self, a sense of worth. And this is what I'd like to invite us to consider this morning as we continue our series, Grace Changes Everything. How does grace change our identity? The way that we see ourselves and find value and worth. And I just wanna give a quick disclaimer up front, we're gonna take the long way home. We do this once in a while, and it's gonna take me a minute to get to where we're going. So I'm gonna ask you to hang in there with me, and then next Sunday, I'll wrap up this kind of two-part talk on identity, okay? So in 2015, the New York Times Magazine ran an article entitled, The Year That We Obsessed About Identity. And the point was, as a society, finally, we are like focusing on identity. Well, that certainly has not been a problem since then, right? We are now obsessed with identity in our culture. It is an obsession, but unfortunately that doesn't mean that we're good at it, that we're good at forming identity. Psychology will tell us that healthy identities have to be durable. That is that we need a core sense of ourself that we can maintain throughout all of the roles that we play in life and the hats that we wear. I mean, contemporary life is nothing if not just a deluge of never-ending series of situations and contexts, home, work, school, community, Little League, you know, PTA, on and on and on and on. And what is the core of who we are that identifies us in every one of these different contexts and situations? You know, life in way back in history did not used to be that way. We didn't interact with as many people. We did not wear as many hats. 
But that's not true for modern life. So, see, every culture has a way of engaging in identity formation and teaching, teaching us how to develop self, self-worth or find value in life. And, and each culture communicates the, these things in very subtle but deeply profound and very powerful ways. And when we look at different cultures, when anthropologists and sociologists look at different cultures throughout the world and throughout history, they find the same thing that they form identity differently, but each one presents their way as if it's the only way, as if, even more than as if this is the only way, they present it as if it's self-evident, like there's not even another option. This is how everyone has always found out who they are and what they're worth. There is no other way, but what if there is? And what I'd like to suggest is that grace, this reality that there is a God and that God is good and that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this good God is already on our side. Grace is another way to form our identity and find value and worth in life. But it is going to be impossible for grace to change everything in our life and about our life if we don't allow the grace of God to be the primary way that we see ourselves and find value. So that's not to say that every culture doesn't have something valuable to contribute to identity formation. They do. We can look at different cultures and there's many things to appreciate, but all cultures ultimately fail to form durable and healthy identities because they all share the same fatal flaw. And we can see this a little bit more easily, the positives and the limitations and the dangers of forming our identities based solely on what the culture around us is telling us by, I'm gonna just break down all cultures or categorize them into two basic categories, traditional cultures and modern cultures. Now our culture used to be a traditional culture, um, and, but it's not fair to say there are none of those anymore, okay? <clears throat> there are many traditional cultures throughout the world still to this day, but traditional cultures are not, as opposed to ours, individualistic. They are communal at heart. The foundation of them, they're communal. And so in a traditional culture, you lived in a family and in a community and you were assigned a role based on you know, where you lived and maybe what your father did. Uh, you com- some combination of those two things, your family of origin, that is who you are, okay? And that's how you find worth. In traditional cultures, you found out who you are and derived a sense of worth by this is gonna sound odd to us, by essentially diminishing or subverting and maybe even extinguishing your needs, your wants, your personal desires for the sake of the whole. In those cultures, if you were to ask someone, who are you, they would usually uh, identify themselves by their role. Okay, where they fit into the whole. I am the son of, I am the daughter of, I am the wife of. Because in traditional cultures, honor is bestowed, worth is derived by fulfilling your role, 
for the good of the whole. Now, our modern culture is not just different from that, it's actually the opposite, right? I mean, in our culture, the way in which you form your identity is to look inside. And, and God forbid, nobody else should, nobody else can, like tell you who you are or how you should derive a sense of value. So find your dreams, you know, seek out your desires and your hopes, do all you can to express that, and that is how you find yourself. That's how you build your own identity. So sociologists have studied this for decades as it's been unfolding in modern America, really in the modern West, in Europe as well. And one of them, a man named Robert Bella, has, uh, a sociologist named Robert Bella, describes our culture's way of forming identity as expressive individualism. Expressive ind individualism. In, in traditional cultures, self-denial is like the hero's tale. That's what heroes do. Our heroic narrative in, in our culture is about self-expression, right? Look inside and then you decide and, and you live out your dreams and you find out what those are. You dig down deep, you excavate your soul and then you go for it. In fact, it's even in our culture more heroic if you go against maybe what your family and your community and the norm is telling you to do or be. In traditional cultures, that would make you a villain. In our culture, it makes you a hero. Now, in the West and in America, uh, this transition from a traditional culture to a modern culture really started in, in full, like, uh, it started in ac academic circles before World War II, but it was really after World War II in the decades that preceding, um, coming right after it, that it's, we really started to see this transition from America being a traditional culture to a modern culture. And so as usual, the arts led the way. So for those of us who are, um, how should I say this delicately, more experienced storyliners, we will recognize one of the first celebrations of this transition in pop culture. This line here, climb every mountain, forward every stream, follow every rainbow until you find your dream. And what's that from? Oh, there you are. That's my over 50 crowd right there, right? <laughs> It's the sound of music. Everybody under 40 is like, what the, what, what, why is this woman dancing on a mountain, okay? It's sound of music, that's right, but that is not a traditional way of forming your identity and finding value and worth, okay? Now, for those of us with less life experience, I think you'll be familiar with this generation's remake of The Sound of Music. Right, no wrong, no rules for me. 
<laughs> so if I would have cut the chorus off every time, you guys, it would have been a riot in here, right? <laughs> now don't get me wrong, I, I'm not trying to be critical. It's a great song, it's triumphant, and in many ways, it's very empowering. And, and now it's also certainly stuck in your head for the rest of the day, right? <laughs> but notice in both of these stories, the hero is part of a traditional community, very traditional community, who dares to leave, to break free, to break the rules, to set out on their own and to pursue their dream. Now that of course, it isn't all bad, okay? In fact, it doesn't take much to see a whole lot of Jesus's story in that. So there's a lot of redemptive things about that way of forming uh, our identities. But both of these basic approaches to identity formation, whether it's traditional or modern, while helpful in some ways, when taken as the only way to see ourselves and to find our value, not only fall far short of creating a healthy and durable identity, they actually create lots of problems for us. In the real world, for example, traditional culture for all of its redeeming qualities, like highly valuing place and tradition and family, home and hearth, right? Those are beautiful things that I think many, many of us are like, as that slips away in our culture, we regret that, right? And the simplicity of traditional cultures, but traditional cultures also leave many people feeling trapped and stifled, oppressed, and even worse. On the other hand, you look at modern culture and it has a deep reverence for like individuals. And it's, it's, it should be no surprise that in modern cultures, that's where we find the birth of things like basic human rights, the abolition of slavery, civil rights, the protection of minorities of every kind. Our modern identity formation seems to cultivate those kinds of rights and looking out for the individual and the people that are set aside. But it also cultivates plenty of pathologies as well. In modern society, where we're supposed to climb every mountain, ford every stream, let it all go, create our own identity, and, and find our own sense of worth, we're all too often left feeling like stressed out, burned out not good enough, I don't measure up, I didn't make it up that mountain, I wasn't able to break free. And what follows is anxiety and abandonment and hopelessness. David Brooks was writing in The Atlantic just last week and he didn't pull any punches on this. Listen to what he said. Expecting people to build a satisfying life on their own by looking within themselves is asking too much. It creates what psychologists call vulnerable narcissists. And we all know narcissists are more common figures in our day, people who are addicted to thinking about themselves, but who often feel anxious, insecure, avoidant. Intensely sensitive to rejection, they scan for hints of disrespect, their self-esteem is wildly in flux, their certainty about their inner worth triggers cycles of distrust, shame, and hostility. Ding, 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 right? We see that all over the place. It sounds so familiar. This has been so dysfunctional for some of us, and, and it's been so dysfunctional 
that what we're now starting to see is some of our most famous and celebrated young artists who typically would champion modern identity formation are instead starting to see the hopelessness in it. desperation, right? 
the deep cynicism when contemporary identity formation is exposed and examined closely. Isn't it lovely all alone? Heart of glass, mind of stone, and then the totally deflated, deflated, like sarcastic, defeated, welcome home. I don't really need to go on, do I? I mean, we all get it. Like, the way we formed identity in traditional cultures didn't work, and the way we form our identity in modern culture isn't working either, because they have the same fatal flaw, ironically. You have to earn your identity. You have to earn it. You have to achieve it. Whether it's by following all the rules in traditional culture or breaking all of them and then making your own in modern culture, and you have to do it, and you have to do it just right, and you have to keep on doing it to know who you are and to feel good about yourself, it is a dreadmill. A dreadmill of exhaustion and despair. Thank God it's also a lie because grace changes everything. Writing to some early followers of Jesus, one of Jesus' disciples, a man named Peter, desperately wants these first followers to know who they are if they'll trust in the grace of God and how that trust in God's grace can change how they see themselves and how we find value. And this is what, this is what he said. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Now in the time that we have left, I'd like to offer just a few observations or discussion starters, if you will, about this passage, and then we'll wrap it up next week. And the first thing that I wanna throw out there is this idea of we are a chosen people. We are chosen people. In other words, we are accepted. So much of our life is driven by the quest for acceptance or at the very least, it's opposite, the fear of rejection. Have you seen how people dressed in the 70s? I mean, it's, you don't dress that way unless it's about like a, a quest for acceptance. As a high school teacher, I see this uh, clumsy quest in teenagers every single day. Now, it's more difficult to see in adults and it's almost impossible to see in ourselves. One of the gifts of being um, more experienced in life, like I am, is caring less and less about being cool. So the guys that I play basketball with are all younger than me, way younger than me. By the way, you would think that would mean that would take it a little bit easy on me. They don't, okay? Anyways, um, and they always have like the latest, coolest shoes, okay? Meanwhile, I play in these, all right? Now, <laughs> if, if these look like you're not so bad, I'm embarrassed, really, okay. If, if these look like shoes your mom would wear, that's exactly where I got the idea. My mom came over one day in these shoes, all right, and I was like, those look so cushy. Oh my God, they look so comfortable. And I went out and bought a pair, and now I play basketballs in shoes designed for mall walking, okay? <laughs> and I don't care. I mean, I look ridiculous, but I don't care because they work. It's like walking on pillows, man. It's playing on pillows. Anyways, but the truth is, when I'm having an identity episode, when I forget that I'm chosen and accepted, 
all too often I do care. And here's why. We were made to be chosen. We are wired to desire acceptance. And if we won't accept our acceptance from God, we'll desperately seek it from others, often with horrible consequences. It's literally impossible to be a woman. You are so beautiful and so smart, and it kills me that you don't think you're good enough. Like, we have to always be extraordinary but somehow we're always doing it wrong. <laughs> you have to be thin, but not too thin. And you can never say you wanna be thin. You have to say you wanna be healthy, but also you have to be thin. You have to have money, but you can't ask for money because that's crass. <sighs> you have to be a boss, but you can't be mean. You have to lead, but you can't squash other people's ideas. You're supposed to love being a mother, but don't talk about your kids all the damn time. You have to be a career woman, but also always be looking out for other people. You have to answer for men's bad behavior, which is insane, but if you point that out, you're accused of complaining. You're supposed to stay pretty for men, but not so pretty that you tempt them too much or that you threaten other women because you're supposed to be a part of the sisterhood, but always stand out and always be grateful. But never forget that the system is rigged, so find a way to acknowledge that, but also always be grateful. You have to never get old, never be rude, never show off, never be selfish, never fall down, never fail, never show fear, never get out of line. It's too hard, it's too contradictory, and nobody gives you a medal or says thank you. And it turns out, in fact, that not only are you doing everything wrong, but also everything is your fault. I'm just so tired of watching myself and every single other woman tie herself into knots so that people will like us. And if all of that is also true for a doll, just representing a woman, then I don't even know. The pain of not being chosen, of being rejected, is that powerful. That's one of the ending monologues from the Barbie movie, and it's like breaking the internet. It's all people are talking about. But if we're already chosen, if we're already accepted right now as we are, our true identity is a gift of God's grace. And that means that we don't have to achieve our identity. We only need to receive it. And that could begin to change everything because being chosen is powerful. Being chosen changes everything, but only when the reason you are chosen can never change. And here's the unchanging and eternal truth. You have been chosen by God himself. Not because of what we've done, or what we haven't done, not because of what we believe or achieve, but by his grace. 
In fact, the Bible says, he chose us before the creation of the world. He chose us before the creation of the world, before you did anything good or bad, right or wrong, before you got an A, before you got your braces off or lost the weight or quit the bad habit, before you were born, before the world was created, God chose you by grace. That's what grace is. We are accepted already. We are chosen. And the grace of God goes even further than that, even deeper, because we aren't just accepted, we're valued by God. The Bible says we are a holy nation belonging to God. And I I, um, was cleaning out my garage this weekend and I found an old milk crate full of baseballs. At at a rummage sale, I, I would probably be lucky to get a dollar for a ball for a baseball. I asked my friend Jim, who's a collector, if he had any baseballs worth more than my baseballs. And so um, he actually sent me a picture of this, okay? If you can't make that out, that is Babe Ruth's signature on a baseball. And that ball was appraised at $15,000. That's more than my baseballs and my car, okay? (laughs) Why, why? Now think about it. If I tried to sell my old Lakeshore High School basketball jersey, I promise you I would get exactly zero for it, okay? Not long ago, Michael Jordan's last Bulls jersey sold for $10.1 million. Yeah, why? Because of who it belongs to. Because of who it belongs to. Who something belongs to changes its value. And the Bible says we belong to God. He has placed his signature on each of us. And that means we aren't just chosen or accepted, we are valuable. The Bible says you are the God's treasured possession. Something is valuable because of who it belongs to, but how valuable? You know, in the end, everyone will tell you Every good business person will tell you everything is only worth what someone is willing to pay for it. The Bible says this, you have been bought and paid for by Jesus. You belong to him. What was God willing to pay for you? Well, here's one way to just say it bluntly. God would rather die than live without you. You are that valuable to him. You are priceless. I hope we're beginning to get just a glimpse, just a taste of the radically different way of forming our identity based on grace can can make our life look and feel, especially when we compare it to, you know, the way that the world tells us to form our identity by achieving something, by keeping the rules of traditional culture, or by breaking and making our own rules in modern culture, chosen and belonging to God, we don't have to get everything just right and be thin but not too thin. We don't have to let it go and break free and we don't have to climb every mountain. We don't have to do X, we don't have to do Y because by grace, we are chosen and accepted, valued as priceless. 
God will never love you more than he does right now. Already chosen, valued, accepted, priceless, before the creation of the world until the end of time. What if there really is a steady love, a God who is gracious? What if our hearts didn't have to live on the run? That could change everything. One last thought to leave us with this week. God, Jesus, the Bible, they all struggle to communicate to us, like to help us grasp grace. This is why the Bible is full of analogies and stories and metaphors. And for me, the most powerful metaphor, the most helpful one is this image that Jesus returns to over and over again. He uses it all the time. He refers to God as Father and we are his children. Now, I remember when Jimmy was born, it was a mess, okay? I'm not gonna lie. I mean, as a first time father, you just don't know what to expect. And I was like blown away, okay? It was messy. All right, there was all kinds of screaming and crying and hyperventilating. It got so bad at one point, the nurse turned to me and said, if you don't calm down, you're gonna have to leave the room. <laughs> right, Lisa, Lisa calmed me down and we got through it, all right? Anyway, when, when Jimmy arrived, he didn't look good, right? But before he was cleaned up, before he was dressed up, before we got him all spick and span, naked, shivering, screaming, the doctor handed him to Lisa. Lisa was crying and kept saying over and over again, he's so beautiful. He's so beautiful. Now I promise you he wasn't, okay? <laughs> but we both loved him right away, immediately, totally. Now he of course grew up and he's getting there, okay? <laughs> right, there's still a lot of hope for that kid, all right? Um, our second child, was Jenna was born, very much the same story. We loved her right away and you know, as she grew up, she gave us plenty of reasons. There's lots of things to love about Jenna. Our third child, Emily, we finally got beyond James and Jennifer, okay? Emily was different. Emily was born with a very rare genetic condition. She was blind, severely mentally disabled. The doctors told us she was never gonna grow or learn or learn to read or ride a bike. And, it was, and she wasn't gonna live very long. And about a year later, I was sitting in Josh White's basement at a Young Life Bible study. I was holding Emily in my lap when a high school girl asked me, you and Lisa, you like love your kids so much and you love Emily just as much as Jimmy and Jenna. And it was really a statement of like wonder. It was almost like a question like, why or how come? Why do you love Emily so much? And the answer, it didn't even come from me, it came through me. And as I heard myself saying it, I, to this day I get chills because it changed my life. I told this high school girl, I love her because she's mine. I don't have another reason. <clears throat> I don't need another reason. She belongs to me. 
that is grace. And I think the closest that we can come to grasping the grace of God is in the love that we have for children. We love them because they are ours. They don't have to get cleaned up or achieve or attain anything. They don't have to follow the rules. They don't have to make their own. We love them because they're ours. And if we can somehow trust that God's grace is at least as strong as our own for our children, oh, how it would change our lives, our identity, and how we find value and worth because we all share in the end the same name, child of God.
We have some cute kids here at Storyline. This is a big commercial for working in the nursery, people. (laughs) So um, our Emily passed away when she was five and a half years old. She never walked or talked. She never crawled or even sat up. And we loved her. We still love her. We'll always love her because she's ours. Emily belongs to us. And we, all of us, belong to God. That is our identity. Chosen, accepted, priceless children of God. So just look up and receive it. Accept your acceptance and watch how an identity based in grace changes everything. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and for this place, for this opportunity to be together. And thank you especially this morning for children and just for how our little ones are just a living, breathing, walking, sometimes screaming and crying (laughs) example of how you love us before the world began until the end of time we are chosen and accepted we are valuable and priceless because we belong to you God I pray that you'd help us to just believe it accept it and move into life with that identity we thank you so much for how you love us and for your grace. I pray that as we leave here this morning, you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much, folks. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to The Gathering from Storyline Church. Have a blessed week.